lean into a passage in the book of Hebrews. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and go there. Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to go in verses 1 through 12 today. Hebrews chapter 6, 1 through 12. As you're turning there, Jessica, can you throw me that bottle of water? Athletes. <laughs> Trying to get a scholarship. I see you. All right. Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to go 1 through 12. This is the word of God. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works of faith towards God and of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, verses 4 through the rest of this to 12 is really the primary meat of our stuff. So I want you to listen to this. Pay attention. Lean in. Verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, no coincidence, today uh, you drove in the downpour to get here and we happen to be talking about this, and produces a crop useful to those, useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing for God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. I told you guys we were talking about hell next week. We're going to talk about this passage for two weeks. Next week is Melina, that part right there. Should be fun. Though we speak, verse nine, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of the hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. This is the word of God. Let's pray to him. Father God, we thank you that you inspired this word to be written as a warning and encouragement to your people, the Hebrew church, years and years ago. You knew what was coming for them in the very same way that you know what is coming for us. Father, you warn because you know what's coming. And the worst thing I believe that we could do is to ignore your warnings because we don't want what is coming to come because we are in denial that what we have seen to be heading towards is not on the horizon. And Jesus, I pray that today we're able to let your word speak to each and every one of us right where we are 
There's a myriad of places that every single person here is, whether that's deep and walking in a, in a hearty relationship with you or the person who is turning their back on you at this very moment or the person whose heart has grown cold or the person who is curious and desperate for some sort of hope. In this room, watching online, there are so many different people who are here gathered under the sound of my voice to hear this gospel truth. And Jesus, I pray that you would allow whatever needs to be spoken to be spoken, that you would shut my mouth and that people would be able to hear you, that the truth and the magnitude of the gospel would weigh on our souls in such a way that we are forced to respond. In your name, amen. All right, so I've got a lot of ground to cover today. Sometimes I only get through one verse and today I have 12. So like I said, it's gonna take two weeks to navigate through this. My hope is today is that I can show you what this passage is talking about and having shown you what it's talking about, try to land at a place and kind of see where people go with this, try to give a little bit of education. And then next week, we're gonna really lean into a story that I think exemplifies what's happening in this text. And that's where the majority of our application will come to. So this, this week is gonna be a lot, a lot of teaching, kind of expounding some stuff. I'm definitely gonna give you some stuff to take away and to do with it. But next week, Father's Day, we're going to really look at the character case of two men and how these men either made this passage be true in their life or made this passage be something that we can learn a very hard truth from. And so today, I want to give us the context for why in the world this pastor would issue one of the most confusing, hard to tackle passages in all of scripture. Why does he do what he does? Well, first of all, you gotta know who he's talking to and why he's getting ready to say these things. As we've gone through the book of Hebrews, one of the things I've continued to tell, these, tell you guys is to get the most out of the book of Hebrews, you have to read it with a Bible in one hand and a history book in the other hand. Now, we know that this pastor is continuing to encourage these people to hold fast, to don't drift, to boldly approach this throne of grace, to know that they have been set free from all fear of death. Over and over again, he's encouraging, encouraging them to have their faith rooted in Jesus and to hold fast, hold fast, don't let go, don't drift. He is continually encouraging them to persevere in their faith over and over again. He's explaining to them how Jesus is greater and better than all the other things that they experienced in their Hebrew faith and how he's now the fulfillment of all those things. And he's just continuing to shine bright the diamond that is Jesus, that is the gospel. So that they see the magnitude of that and their faith gets roots, their faith gets claws, their faith fights, their faith holds strong to the Jesus they now actually see for who he really is. And the reason that I believe God inspires this pastor to write such a encouraging, sometimes even warning, sometimes even he's, he's giving them reprimands to try to encourage them on. The reason he's doing that to encourage them on to perseverance is because he knows that what is coming is persecution. That's why I said we have to read the book of Hebrews with a Bible in one hand and a history book in the others. There was minor persecutions that was breaking out for the Hebrew Christians at the time that this was written. But what we know through studying history, we talked about this a lot last week, is that an onslaught of persecution breaks out for this fledgling church, likely immediately following them reading these words. And so this was an incredibly timely passage of scripture for them and my hope is this incredibly timely passage of scripture for us as well. I don't know the future and I cannot predict the future. But if this was a timely message to them that encourages them to persevere 
and a message to persevere that precedes persecution, if that may be our case, my hope is that we would heed the warning, that we would hold fast, that we would persevere like the church of Jesus Christ is called to persevere. Right before he enters into this passage we're gonna dive in today, he just got through doing two things. One, he's explaining how Jesus is a true and greater high priest. He's gonna get back into that in a second, but he explains Jesus is a true and greater high priest. He's a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, which they're kind of confused. They're like, well, I wish we understood about that. And what he does, he kind of gets that they're gonna be confused as he starts to get into the deeper land, is he just kind of pauses. And he does what we talked about last week. He says, I wish I could explain this more to you guys, but y'all need some milk. Y'all need to grow up. I wish I could tell you all these things, but y'all are still babies. And the reason he's telling them and he's encouraging them, he's being stern with them, is he's saying, listen, when things get hard, because they're gonna get hard, if you're still a baby, you're not going to make it. And now he continues on in this warning and he takes it even a step further than the strong words he gave them last week. And he gives them these words of this week. And now he's starting to say, hey guys, it's gonna be impossible if you've heard these things and done these things and experienced these things and then you fall away, it's gonna be like you're re-crucifying Christ. And so like, was like, whoa. And then he's gonna get back into... Melchizedek, but we've got to get this passage because the warning here is huge. And the implications of what you believe about this passage is huge. Now, let me just go ahead and say, this is one of the most argued over passages in all of scripture about what this actually means, who he's actually talking to, the two primary branches in all of like modern doctrine of Calvinism and Arminianism. This is one of the primary verses that both use to argue and leverage different aspects of that. Even the denominations that you'll find even in our local region, many of them either leverage this or don't leverage this or dissuade this or, or nullify this in order to prove their points on things. So I say all that to say, who are we MCC? Well, here's what we are. We are a mixed bag of a little bit of everything. We have our our history and our heritage in the restoration movement, but (laughs) I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand on this because, you you know, whatever, Uh, but there's plenty of recovering Baptists here in our church. There's recovering Methodists in our church. There's recovering Catholics in our church. And there's people who just found Jesus in our church altogether. There's some staunch restoration movement people who, man, we could go into all their fun stuff. Um, There's a little bit of everybody here. So the reason I'm telling you all this and explaining this to you guys is what I hope happens at MCC is we don't just come in, hear a Bible verse or hear some sermons on some things and then go out and go, okay, that's cool for me. What we do as a church is we read the Bible and then we break into groups and we talk about what's in the Bible. Now, when you get into those things, that's where I'm encouraging you to maintain unity, to go some things and some interpretations on this is is open-handed and how I would treat my brother and sister in Christ, even though they may differ on this, that can't be like me treating them like they're going, they're hellbound because they believe different than me. There are tenets of the gospel that we have to hold close-handed and there are some that we are able to hold open-handed. So let's lean in and see where we can go on this one. Hebrews 6.1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Let's stop uh, about right here. He says, therefore, let's leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. What he's not saying is forget about all those really important things at the beginning. He's saying, if we are going to continue to build a house to use Jesus' language as he finished his Sermon on the Mount, he said, uh, you are like a wise person. If you hear these words and put them into practice, it's like you built your house deep on the foundation of the rock. But what did you build? A house. You didn't just build a base level. 
You had the foundation firm on the rock, but you went on to build a house. It's his way of saying, yes, we have to have a foundation, guys, but we can't just have a foundation. We gotta build a house so we can withstand the storms that he knows, I think by the power of the Holy Spirit, is getting ready to come and attack the church at gale force speed. So he says, we've gotta move past some of these foundational things, and not again trying to lay a new foundation, and then he talks about the different things. He's basically leaning into their doctrine, what they believed. First thing he talks about is repentance of dead works and faith towards God. Verse two and three, put these together so kind of get what he's going at. And of the instruction about washing and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So there's really primarily, he mentions six things, but they're kind of broken into three different categories of what he's talking about there. And he's just, again, I'm not gonna spend a ton of time. He's explaining to them the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the spirit, and then the doctrine of end times. He's saying, guys, we've already navigated through this. We have talked about the doctrine of salvation. We've talked about repentance and faith. We've talked about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit washes us clean. And he's talked about baptism. He's talked about laying on the hands. And then he says, we have talked about the doctrine of end times. He's talked about the resurrection. He's talked about the judgment. He says, we have already laid out this foundation of these core tenets of the gospel. And then he gets to verse four. This is where it gets bumpy. For it is impossible. Hold up, stop, wait a minute. When you see that word in your Bible, you go, okay, something here is definite. Something here is like case closed. We gotta kind of lean into that. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, if you just start right there, like enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, who do you think he's talking about? Don't say it. Or you can think it. You can say it if you want to. Christians, yeah, most people are going, that sounds like a Christian to me. Like they have uh, been enlightened, they have tasted the heavenly gift, they have shared in the Holy Spirit, you know, okay. Now, again, he said impossible. We got, he's going to connect the impossible to what is really happening here in a second. We got to, we're gonna get to that eventually. But he's all, right off the bat, he's saying, it's impossible for people who have had this stuff happened. They've been enlightened. That word means they were once in darkness and they kind of had their eyes open to see the truth have tasted the heavenly gift. This is where scholars and people who are interpreting this, uh, most all wish he would expound a little bit upon what heavenly gift is talking about. In other passages that gives us a little bit of an, a window into the heavenly gift, most of the time when it's talking about heavenly gift, it's referring to the gift of salvation. It's referring to the gift of righteousness. Most of the time when you see that word gift, grace follows, salvation follows, the Holy Spirit sometimes follows, the gift of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit follows, which that could be it because the next thing he talks about is sharing in the Holy Spirit. These are all things that he's saying, there's a certain group of people, those people who have experienced these things. He makes it even more big. He says, and they have tasted the goodness of the word of God. What he's after here, I believe, is they have heard the preaching of the gospel. They have, they've seen scripture illuminated to them. That is what enlightened them. And the powers of the age to come. That word powers is the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. Over and over again in the gospels, this refers not to just like powerful things happen or really strong people. This refers to miracles. They have seen these miracles. So he's saying, all right, there's this group of people who have, Heard these things, seen these things, tasted these things. And again, you gotta connect four to six here. It's impossible for those people who have seen these things and then have fallen away 
to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again, the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, surface level, this is where the people who would say you can have salvation and you can lose salvation, this is proof positive for that side of things. That's what they would leverage the people who, who adhere to that. This is, this is the primary thing they would go to and say this is proof positive. The salvation is something that you can lose. But I think that's a dangerous jump to make. I'm gonna explain why here in a second. Because what this first implies and what this first skips over, if you jump to that, is the question of who are we talking about? And again, I think in order to understand that, you have to really lean into the context of what is actually happening here. Before we do that, I wanna make sure we understand what he's saying here before we try to pick apart and use our best Bible study knowledge tools and practices to figure out what does he mean by what he says. First of all, he says, there's this group of people who've experienced these things and then they have fallen away. That is not the same Greek word for apostasy. It's actually a different word. It's kind of translated slip or fall. That's what it means. It's not the same Greek word that's translated apostasy in other places. He says, it's impossible for them to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their harm and holding him up to contempt. Really key in understanding what in the world he's talking about here is knowing what that word contempt is implying. The people I believe he's talking about here, and this is illustrated by the rest of the things he's getting ready to say. These are people who look at Christ and not figuratively, but literally say, you are nothing to me. That's what contempt means. Let me look around. I think I'm in the clear. Um, one of my absolute least favorite, worst, you know, everybody's kind of like, like, you know, somebody may let some cuss word slip, but the one that like nobody wants to let slip is the one with that F at the front, right? And the worst thing you can do with the, with the one with the F at the front is put a U at the back, like, if you, like that's really bad. But what is being communicated in that, and this is why that is such a heartbreaking thing for someone to say, which is just terrible that we hear it so flippantly in our culture, is what's being said there is I have contempt for you. It is as if you were as good as dead. Jesus, when he was in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talked about anger, this is the word raka. That, that was, that was the, the Hebrew euphemism that they would use when you would say to somebody, Raka, it was your way of saying, you're dead to me, it's contempt. And so when he's talking about these people who have fallen away, what you don't hear is this, what, please don't get in your mind, this good-hearted, trying-your-best person who just did the one sin one too many times and God was like, nope, you hit the, you hit the max, you're done, you're out of here. The seesaw cannot be corrected. This is someone who looks at Jesus with their middle finger up, with contempt. And why he says it would be as if you were crucifying him again is because the heart of this person is you are dead to me. You didn't die for me so that I could have life. You are dead to me. You don't matter to me. You're nothing to me. Now, that is the seriousness that he's putting on display in this passage. 
I want to issue a personal warning to anybody who we would maybe look at even in our own walk with Jesus and begin to, whether unknowingly or not, or subconsciously or not, throw them into this category. Because this whole thing right here of fallen away and the question that comes with it of has someone fallen away is above your pay grade. You are not qualified to determine whether or not somebody has fallen away from God because you are not, last time I checked, him. Now, you can look at fruit on the outside. We can judge what we see based on someone's life. We can see whether or not the fruit of discipleship is happening, is evident in their life. But can we determine whether or not somebody has fallen away from God to the point where they cannot be restored? No, you cannot determine that. You can look at the fruit. You can acknowledge things that are happening in their life. But do you know whether they have fallen past a place where they can be restored? No, you don't. Now, the reason I say that is because if this passage is true, from the side of things and the understanding of things is going that, well, there's these people who they can used to know Christ and then they just start going crazy. You know, and again, I'll, let me just play with the South a little bit. Well, I know what church they grew up in and now they vote Democrat. They have fallen away. Too close? They have fallen away. They can't be restored. They are hellbound kindling. That's what they are. That's a very dangerous jump to make because you have placed your seat, yourself on the judgment seat of God based off of what you see in a person's life in a moment. And you don't know what moments will follow next. As I read this passage and I go, what does this mean for me as a pastor? What I know it doesn't mean is, and I can say this with pretty strong security, I don't think there will ever come a time in my life where I treat anybody as if they have fallen away from Christ to a place to which they could not be restored. I don't think there's gonna come a moment in my time as a pastor, and I hope I'm a pastor for a really, 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 really long time, but I don't think there's gonna come a moment where I just go, you are a lost cause, and the fact that my savior never said that for me is, is and, and of all the times and all the sins and all the times and moments where I felt like I am a lost cause, I hear the recurring voice of my father going, no son, you're not. How dare I go and treat somebody like they're a lost cause, like they've fallen away to the place where they can't be restored because I don't know that. This is, this is a God decision. And so I, I, would, I would err on the side of grace and go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna love you and care for you, treat you the best I can and do all that I can to try to show you the truth and the magnitude of who Jesus is. But I'm not gonna go, you've fallen away. Now, the other side of that pendulum, say I'm down at um, what's it, LA Fitness and I say, I wanna play some pickup basketball. You know, that's what I wanna do. And I, and I go and I meet some people and I, and I get in you know, a little group and I'm playing some pickup basketball with some guys. And uh, we're sitting there, you know, tying our shoes, getting ready. Uh, me, I'm putting like four ankle braces on because uh, I got wet paper bags for tendons on my ankles. And we're getting ready to go out. And as we're doing this, the guy sitting beside me, he just starts bragging about all the girls he's um, having extramarital affairs on his wife with. And he starts talking about um, the drugs that he's been selling and how he's making um, lucrative amounts of money by selling what he is. And he talks about... Um, 
the lies that he's been telling and how nobody's found him out. He uh, begins to uh, share with me this uh, really heinous crime that he committed uh, a couple years ago that he got away with. And I'm just sitting there tying my shoes going, okay, well, this game should be fun, you know? And uh, we get one of those halftime things, you know, we, the game in, you know, the game ends and we're on a little water break before the next one starts. And, and I start trying to share the gospel with him. And, I, and I'm like, hey man, um, where, are you, where, where are you at with Jesus? You know, do, do you know Christ? You, know, you wanna come to church uh, with me uh, next Sunday? Um, it's kind of a big deal. Uh, I think you could need it. Uh, might be good. And then his response to that, and hopefully I would do a little bit better, more polished than that. But his response would be, well, man, I don't need to do that. Are you trying to witness to me right now? Oh, that's so funny. Um, I actually don't need to do that because when, when I was 10 years old, you know what I did? I, when I was 10 years old, my mom took me to church and I raised my hand and, and, and when everybody's eyes was closed, I don't know if my mom even saw it. I raised my hand and, and, and I know that I am eternally secure. I, I don't need to, you know, do all those things. I really don't even need to change this way I'm living because I, I, I know that I, I'm good. I know that I was saved and I'm always, I know that I'm straight. I know that I'm rocking and rolling. I'm good to go. Now, what do I do in that moment? Oh, you're right, man, I guess. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Like, I don't, you know, what, what do you do there? When they say, I know I'm good, but you hear their actions and you hear their life and you're going, I know you're not. <laughs> you know, what, what happens in those moments and this is what's heartbreaking about it is, is we've got to be people who go, no, no, big fella, I think you met maybe a savior, but you got a half gospel preached to you, one that only gave you a savior and didn't give you a Lord. Then there's a problem with that. And so we, we, I would have this onus on my heart as a pastor is to go, I'm not gonna go take this verse and go, well, dang it, nobody can ever lose what they've got in Jesus. So you're good, buddy. You know, pat him on the butt. I hope your wife doesn't find out. That would be wicked and evil of me to do. My call, on, my call to, to meet this person is to go, ooh, buddy, I wanna introduce you to the real Jesus because I don't know if you really met him. If you did, things would, I believe, be very, very different in your life. Now, when it comes to pastors like this, we have to navigate with caution because of where things can go and what we can navigate into. There's a passage that I wanna read to you that I hope shows us what our approach to, would be to anybody who we may feel like is fallen into this category of fallen away, whether you wanna label it backsliding or you wanna lay this contempt for Jesus. James 5, 19 through 20. James is Jesus's brother. He's talking to the church there and he says, my brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It, it reminds me of the song we sang last week, Come Thou Fount, where I think in a very in tune with the nature of mankind, the author writes, prone to wonder, God, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Now, in light of all that, 
the big question still remains. In this passage, is he talking about people who are truly ones who have received salvation from Jesus? Or are we talking about people who have gotten close, but their falling out shows that they were never really in? It's a question. Were they people who got really close, but fell out? So now we're going, okay, well, they were never in in the first place. And the fact that they fell out proves that they were never in. Or it's just people who were really in and fell out, never to be able to return. Well, let's start with that first notion that these are people who were potentially really saved and then let go of it, turned away, put up the middle finger in the sky to Jesus. Well, if that's the case, and that's what happened to those people, well, then we have some problems when we go to the whole canon of scripture in regards to eternal security. And is this thing that I receive in eternal life, not that I made up on my own, but eternal life from Jesus, actually something that is from Jesus. And if it's from Jesus, how secure is it? There's a multitude of passages that if we're gonna go to something like this in Hebrews and go, well, this shows that, that you can be fully in love with Jesus, saved by Jesus, and then you can just, you know, not be. Well, there's some alarming passages that seem to speak otherwise. I wanna read some of those to you guys so we can see the whole picture, see the whole page. I'm never gonna, I'm trying, gonna do my best to never try to be the pastor who just gets on stage and then pounds your head with what I think to be true. I wanna, I wanna show you the whole gospel. So in regards to eternal security, if we believe this passage is saying you can have it and you can lose it, then John 10, 28 is a difficult passage. John 10, 28 says, this is Jesus talking. He says, I give them eternal life. Let's just pause right there. I give what kind of life? Eternal. How long is eternity? Forever. <laughs> that's not a trick question. He's saying, I give eternal life. I give a life that's eternal life that goes forever. And they will never perish. Those who I give that to. He says, they will never perish. And then he says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If I believe that these people here have been given this eternal life, but then somehow what was eternal now stops being eternal and they are no longer in Jesus' hand, well, it's hard to chew on in light of John 10, 28. Our passage is like Philippians 1, 6. Apostle Paul's talking to church in Philippi. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ saying this salvation and this sanctification that is happening is started and initiated by God and God is going to bring it to completion. So to read a passage like this and go, well, you can stop what God is doing seems to run in opposition to that. Ephesians, really almost all of Ephesians, it's hard to chew on in light of that view. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, Apostle Paul is talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit and salvation that coincides. He says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Or Ephesians 2, 8. 
through 10. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's like, you didn't do this. And again, to go to this passage where we're talking about now, if you're gonna look at it from that view, it's to say, I didn't do this, but I can undo this. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now that, and and honestly, I, I chose four or five, but there's a great multitude of Bible verses that point to the eternal security for those who are in Christ, multitude. And again, there's a massive dividing line on this passage and a massive dividing line on Protestants in general on that issue of eternal salvation. And is it something that I can lose? Now, as far as MCC goes, this is our statement on this. This is where we're at. We believe it is impossible to lose your salvation in regards to the term lose. It's not something that you're gonna get tricked out of. It's not something that you're going to uh, necessarily even sin out of. It's not something that you're going to misplace. That would be really dangerous. My wife will tell you, I lose my keys, I lose my debit card, I lose uh, uh, children at times. Um, And if salvation was something I could just lose, that would be extremely terrifying. Now, as far as terminology goes, and the semantics go, I would say it's much less of a question of, is this something I can lose? But the question then will become, is this something I can leave? There's the concept of free will salvation. And is this something I could choose to willingly leave? Now, again, this is, this is one of those places where we, can, where we become a church who remains open-handed on these things. Where I, I'm gonna tell you where I'm at, because I think some of you are wondering, but I will tell you when I tell you where I'm, I'm, I'm at, just don't go, well, Trent seems really smart, so I'm just gonna believe what he believes. That's a really dangerous thing. That's how people end up in hell. I'm the, that's for real. I'm just gonna believe what they believe because they sound smart. That's not, don't do that. Study, pray, process, dig. For me, I have a really hard time believing that you can taste and see the goodness of Christ and ever willingly leave. And and maybe I'm saying that because I have tasted and seen it. It would be like me, it would be, to get me to leave Jesus, would be like getting me to believe Jessica Schumacher doesn't exist. No, I have tasted and seen. Like, uh, we had a honeymoon. We have two kids. We have had anniversaries. We have gone on trips. She has helped me through some of the most painful, heartbreaking times of my life. To tell me that, that, that she is not real would be the most asinine, stupid thing you could ever tell me. And that's something I would never, ever believe to be true because I've tasted and seen her love for me and I know my love for her. Now, in regards to 
what I believe this passage is actually talking about. Like if you pressed me for who do you really think he's talking to? Personally, I don't even think he's talking about in this passage, people who are born again, saved Christians. I'm gonna explain to you why in a second. In the Hebrew church, remember what is happening. These are people who are coming out of Judaism into Christianity. These are not rebellious people, sex, drugs, rock and roll. These are religiously astute people who do for the most part things that they make themselves feel good about to know that God feels good about them. That's why he's over and over again had to explain these things. What is at risk here is not these people going, yeah, we used to believe in Jesus and we got all these things, but now we're just gonna, we really like to party. We really like this. What is danger for these people is we, we get this thing about Jesus, but we really liked being Jewish because we knew if we did good, we got good. If we did bad, we got bad. And this idea of saved by grace through faith, not by any of my own works, eh, I want God to be on my side. I want a God who I can leverage for my good based off the good I do. These are the people he's talking to. Now, the reason I believe he's talking to people who have tasted aspects of Jesus, experienced the goodness of Christian community and have now said, "Mm, no, this full Jesus thing is not for me is because over and over again throughout scripture, we see that category of people who outwardly show some signs of closeness, nearness to Christ or Christian community. Yet, fall away, even though they have seen the power, been parts of the power of Jesus, that power and the things that they experience doesn't well up into salvation and surrender and they fall away. I wanna walk you through some of those. If you got a Bible, I want you to go to Matthew 11. Matthew 11. Matthew 11 and then jump down to verse 20 through 24. So this is Jesus. He's talking to specific cities, large groups of people. Verse 20, he began to announce the cities where most of his mighty works, starting to sound like the stuff that happened in Hebrews, where most of his mighty works had been done, but they did not, key word here, repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than you. And you, Capernaum. Let's just talk about Capernaum and the things that happen in Capernaum. Capernaum is one of the places, given what we see in the gospels, over and over again, Jesus is doing everything to the people of Capernaum that we see the pastor in Hebrews write about in verses six, or in chapter six, verses four, five, and six. They experience the preaching of the word, Jesus heals hundreds of people. Capernaum is the place where we get the story of the guy. They rip off the root. They have the paralytic. They lower him down. Jesus forgives him of his sins and heals him there in that moment. All of this happens in Capernaum. Capernaum is probably the place that had the per capita majority of miracles and teachings from Jesus. 
They've seen, they, they literally had the word of God in flesh there amongst them. Miracle after miracle after miracle. All those things that are in Hebrews 6, 4, 5, 6 are happening there in Capernaum. And listen to what Jesus says about Capernaum. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For the mighty works done in you, if they had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than you. And this is where where mouths go up and go, goodness. Now, the reason he is making this point, I believe this is some of what he's saying here. He said, Listen, all of these miraculous things happened right there in front of your faces. Some of it happened to you, yet you still refuse to believe. The reason he's saying the punishment is gonna be worse for you, Capernaum, than Sodom, like that's the Sodom and Gomorrah, where we get our term sodomy from. Like it's gonna be worse for Capernaum than it is for Sodom because of the magnitude of God's grace that was fully on display. How much of God they tasted in Capernaum is what makes them even more accountable. And to connect this to our passage in Hebrews, to have seen all that they saw in Capernaum and still not believe that Jesus was the Messiah was the biggest middle finger you could ever give him, contempt. Now, to take it away from cities and to make it specific to crowds, go to the book of John, John chapter six, Verse 66. What Jesus just got through doing is being there on the hillside. He heals, or he, he feeds a multitude of people, bread and loaves. It's another one of those moments where he feeds the masses, fish, bread for everybody. Then... <laughs> Everybody just wanted good food and just to chill out, have a siesta. Jesus had to go mess things up by preaching a really weird sermon to everybody. And he starts talking about, you want all this food. I want to tell you, I'm the real food. He says, you will not have eternal life. You will not have a part of me unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And my flesh is real flesh and my blood is real blood. And you can't have a part of me if you're eating, unless you're eating and drinking it. And people are like, what? That's gross, Jesus. And then we see verse 66. And after this, after he said all of that, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They are moments away from obvious, again, it's all Hebrew six, tasting the miracle of God in their presence, hearing the word of God in its, not, I'm not reading on a page somewhere, literally Jesus literally talking to them as the word made flesh. And they go, nah, it's too much. That's not it. Again, big middle finger to Jesus. Now, to take it even more all the way down from cities to specific crowds to an individual. Let's talk about this guy named Judas. Judas experienced everything that disciples did. He was one of them. He saw all, maybe almost all of the miracles that Jesus did. He heard literally, like (laughs) he would be sitting around in the thing and go, okay, he's starting that thing about birds again. All right. And he's, 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 consider the birds. Like he's my, he he can finish Jesus' sermons. He's heard him so much. 
And on the night where Jesus is getting ready to be betrayed, they're all sitting around. And Jesus drops a bombshell in the room. He says, listen, fellas, one of you is gonna betray me. I'm gonna be handed over to the authorities. I'm gonna be crucified and killed. And do you know what the other 11 in the room don't do? No, when Jesus says, one of you is gonna betray me, what doesn't happen is the other 11 go, ooh, Judas, he's talking about you. We, ooh, he knows. Nobody does that. What happens in the room? They all start whispering. Minds start going. Who, who, who is it? Is it, oh, it's not, is it me? Like, Every, everybody, the disciples got a lot of things wrong. I think this is one of the places they got it right. All of them in humility. When Jesus says, one of you guys is gonna betray me, betray me, you have no record of anybody going, that dude, it's gonna be him. What, 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 what is happening is people are going, oh gosh, I hope it's not me. Who, they're asking Jesus, Jesus, who are you talking about here? Which again, I, I think is proof positive that no one saw this coming except for Jesus. There's a uh, quote that I came across this week from Charles Spurgeon, love it. And I think it embodies one of the positive attributes that we see in the disciples pre-Jesus' crucifixion. There's a lot after he's crucified and resurrected, but pre-crucifixion, there's, they don't get a whole lot right. But I do think their heart and humility of going, I'm not so secure in my faith that when you throw this bombshell out, Jesus, I'm not gonna question, is my faith real? Is my, is my faith really sincere? Spurgeon said this, he who is true will sometimes suspect himself of falsehood while he who is false will wrap himself in a constant confidence of his own sincerity. One more time. He who is true will sometimes subject himself to falsehood while he who is false will wrap himself in a constant confidence of his own sincerity. I think what he's after here is Approach where you stand with Jesus with fear and trembling and humility to ensure that you are the type of soil that is cultivated and bearing fruit. And this whole idea of cultivation, soil, fruit is the primary place that I would connect back into this passage. And the reason that I was sent back to what Jesus said about soil and fruit is that is where the author of Hebrews goes after he issues that warning. We, we already went there. If you got a Bible, look at Luke 8, 13. I'm gonna show it to you on the screen if you don't have to turn there. But you remember this whole parable of the seeds or the parable of the sower. Specifically talking about one type of soil, Jesus says this, Luke 8, 13. Uh, the other um, time where he talks about this is in uh, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew is one that is maybe even extended further than this one in Luke. But he talks about this. And this is again, in my humble opinion, this type of people is who I think he's talking about in Hebrews chapter six, 8.13. And the ones on the rock, soil fall, or the seeds fall on soil of the rock, who's, those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. Awesome. This is, you know, reference back to Hebrews 6, 4. They are enlightened. I received this with joy. Oh, that sounds great. You're telling me I don't have to go to hell because I've done a lot of bad things? I know I've done a lot of bad things. I'm receiving this gospel message with joy. Yeah. They receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a little while and at the time of testing, 
they fall. They fall away. Now, there's, there's stuff that comes up out of the surface. There's things that, that, are, that grow. Something happens. It's shooting up. In Matthew, the, the other thing that causes this um, type of stuff to come out of the ground and, and there to be stuff there, but then it falls away or gets choked out, is the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of life. See, what I believe the pastor of Hebrews knows is the very same thing that Jesus knew is that the gospel is gonna sound really good at first and then life is going to happen. And the true test of whether or not you have really grasped the gospel is if it is something that you can let go of when times get hard. And if it is, you did not grasp the whole gospel. You did not get the whole Jesus. So let's continue on with this idea of seeds and soil because that's where our passage takes us in verse seven and eight. I don't think it's any crazy coincidence that today we had a first service. It was an absolute downpour in here. It was crazy while I was teaching this. Seven, eight. This is where he even simplifies. Jesus gives us four souls, pastor of church of Hebrews. He's like, I'm gonna make it two. He said, let's talk about it like this. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, keyword there, we're gonna come back to that, they receive a blessing from God. I think that blessing is eternal salvation. That's what he's, I believe he's alluding to here. But if it bears thorns and thistles, again, good ground, bad ground, both are getting what? Rain. They're both, it's raining on both. They're both receiving the sustenance. They're both getting aspects of the unrecorded blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burnt. Now, you're Southerners, you know how yards work. What do you have to do at your house to get thorns and thistles? Not a trick question. What do you got to do to get them? Nothing, not one thing. They will be there. Do you know why they will be there? Genesis chapter three, the curse says this ground from now on, the sin scarred, broken world. If you do nothing, thorns and thistles. That is what will happen. If you do nothing with, you do nothing with it, thorns and thistles are what's gonna happen. Do nothing, that's what's gonna happen. But, key word here, cultivated. There's gonna be thorns and thistles on the ground that bears fruit too. But what happens to it? This is, this is even what he says to Adam, the first man. He says, you will have the sweat of your brow. You will have to work at this. You'll receive the blessing. You'll receive the seed. The miracle of growth will happen and the fruit hopefully will persevere. But Adam, you're gonna have to cultivate by the sweat of your brow, this ground, or it will be swallowed up in thorns and thistles. The point I believe he's trying to make here is this, that we have to remain fervent about faith, not fearful about our salvation. That this faith that we have is not something that we just go to to the, the LA fitness guy. Oh, I've got this salvation. I'm good to go. I'm good. I'm I'm out. I'm out here. I I can do what I want with my spouse. I can do what I want with my body. I can eat what I want. I can lie where I want. I can steal what I want. I can do all these things because I know my salvation is good. No, he's saying remain fervent about it. But at the same time, 
I'm not sitting around here, you know, somebody sneezes at the office and I forgot to say, God bless you. And I'm like, oh Jesus, my eternal security is at, at risk here. I forgot, you know, you know, and I didn't get a chance to tell them and I texted them that I was sorry and I apologized, but I didn't get a chance to get back. Like, like we have got to find this place where we are not fearful of our salvation being something that is not for us or that we're in danger of losing and then get to the other side where we're no longer fervent about what we have. The call, I believe, and this is, there's one primary recurring theme of the book of Hebrews is persevere, persevere, persevere. Be fervent about this faith. Don't drift, hold fast over and over again. That is always continue to pound on the head. And I believe it's his way of saying, you will know that this faith that you have is saving faith because it's faith that lasts that perseveres, that doesn't give up when things get hard. And this is where, I love this. He gives them this really hard warning. He tells them to grow up. He tells them to get off milk. And then right here towards the end of this little section, he starts to get a little bit more kind and encouraging. He says, though we speak in this way, he's like, you know, I'm talking hard to you right now. (laughs) Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, he's being nice again, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. Verse 11 is huge. And we desire that each of you to show the same keyword, underline it, tattoo it on your heart, earnestness to have the full assurance of hope. When? Until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Do you know, like, like I come to all these passages like this and I go like, okay, well, how is this gonna change what we do? And how is this gonna change who I am? Do you know when you'll know if somebody really was saved or not? When they're either there with you or they're not there with you. Like that's when you'll know. On this side, good luck. You're not gonna know. Either you're gonna be in hell and looking around going, Oh, they ain't here. They must have made it. Are you going to be in heaven looking around going, hey, there you are. You made it. It was close there for a little while. (laughs) Like one way or the other. But you're not going to know for sure, right? Until we cross over. Now, we're going to go in our time here believing the absolute best that we can about people. Again, not just going like, oh, you're good. You you prayed that prayer one time. You raised that hand. We're going to still nurture people on. We're still going to be fervent. We're still going to move forward in perseverance. But what we know is true is, is this concept is that faith that saves is faith that endures to the end over and over again. That's what we see here is that it's faith that endures. It's faith that is proven to be saving faith. And this guys, this is not a new theme in Hebrews. The author has been here all along, Hebrews 3.14, this is what he says. We have come to share in Christ if indeed, there's a big if right there, if indeed we hold to the original confidence firm to win. The end, not when things get hard, not when things go a little bit sideways. He says, hold to the end and then we will be firm and secure. Another one, 10.38. He says, but my, my righteous one, righteous and redeemed, secure, restored. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, This is that lack of perseverance. This is like, oh, this world's getting too scary right now. If you shrink back, to me, what that shows is you never never let anything grow in you. you. You were in the forest, but nothing ever took root. Nothing was ever cultivated. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then back to our one in 11. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. Now, 
as we wrap this up, my question to you is, is your life defined by earnestness and perseverance in your faith? Are there places even in your life where you have gotten to the place where you're beginning to show Jesus contempt. Not fully contempt. Now, I don't, I'm not gonna go out there and say, you're at this place where you're just showing full-blown contempt for Jesus. We're just saying, you're dead to me. I don't know you. Get out of my life. You may not be there. But are you showing contempt around the things he cares about? Well, Jesus, you know, we'll make it to church once this summer, twice. You know, Jesus, we'll, we'll get in a group if we got time. Well, Jesus, we'll be generous if... You know, we have a good week. I make enough sales. Well, Jesus, you know, I'll serve at some point. You know, it, well, Jesus, yeah, I know I looked at that stuff that I shouldn't have looked at. Jesus, you know, yeah, I raised my voice. Like, you, you've been given this Holy Spirit inside of you that shows you, tells you, and notifies you when you're off course. And contempt and a lack of fervency And a faith that is giving up on enduring is a faith that goes, I'm okay with that. So my question to some of you is, are there some things that are happening in your life that you used to never be okay with that you have found yourself becoming okay with? What are those? And it's it's time to kill those things and to begin to feel those things because those are the very things that Christ felt for you on a bloodstained cross. He had his arms spread east to west, feet laid one over another, pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him so that we would never experience a crucifixion, so that we would never experience abandoning him, so that we would never experience you know, getting to this place where we have full contempt on what he's done, but we would receive it the first time and receive it all the way the first time and know with full blown security that we are his and he is ours. So if you're here today and and you don't know this saving faith in Jesus, you're here today and you have only ever known the half gospel of Jesus is just my savior and you have not given him your life and you have questions around your eternal security, I would love to talk with you about Fellow, one of those next steps cards or come down here and talk to me about that. We can baptize you today and you can enter into full-blown surrender that surpasses just a mind that goes, I hear some things about Jesus. I like showing up at a church and, and hearing those songs about Jesus. I like being able to hear them share the miracle things that's happening. But is Jesus actually living and working through me? Is faith even being cultivated in my life? Or is that just something where I go, yeah, I believe on that. Am I just like the people in the crowd? When Jesus feeds them, I come in, I consume some Jesus stuff, but when the teaching gets hard, when I'm supposed to do something with what I learned, I go, yeah, this teaching is hard for me. And if you're ready to cultivate the most invigorating, life-changing life possible, life in Christ, my call is that you would surrender to that fully today and know that your eternity is secure in him. Let's pray. Father, it's not easy to hear the whole truth. It's not easy to have the whole truth of the gospel that we are more sinful and wicked than we ever dared to imagine, but at the same time, we are more loved than we ever dared to dream or hope all in the same moment in time. And so today I pray that you would soften the heart of the sinner and show them that you are their savior. 
and that you would bring those who are in you, for you, and with you into a place where <laughs> where the rain that is falling now. Oh, you're good. Where the rain that is falling now allows the seeds of faith that you had planted within us to be cultivated, to bear fruit that lasts for generations to generations. Father, as we sit and listen to rain fall on this roof, let us refuse to be people who drink the blessing of your rain that washes us white as snow, yet refuse to cultivate the ground the rain has watered. So move in us as we worship you now. Son of suffering on a cross before us and in heaven before us ruling and reigning forevermore.